I'm Bray. And I'm Charlotte. This is the Midnight Record. The Midnight Record. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In them low notes. Well, today's your episode, so what we got? It is. It's a me focus episode. I'm excited. I have no idea. Um, yeah, you don't know anything. So actually, this episode is coming out two days before my birthday. Yay. Happy so birthday in advance. Thank you. It's sort of a um, birthday present to me. Um, <laughs> but honestly, when I tell you what it is, you're going to be like, that's your birthday present to yourself. Right. I was thinking about doing the West Memphis 3. Mm-hmm. But I want to read the book, and the book wasn't going right. to get here in time for me to, like, do it properly. And, like, right. that case, just, like, with, like, GSK, like you were saying, mm-hmm. and, like... Yeah, I'm going to reread the book. Yeah, and, like, and like Zodiac and, thing, like, bigger cases like that, I really want to make sure that I do it, like, justice. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'll do it eventually, but... Yeah. Maybe in the next... Time. I was going to say, probably in the next couple of months. So, I've, like, already started the research, but I was, like, I was, like, looking at it earlier this week, and I was just, like, there... It's a lot. Yeah, like, I'm not going to get this done. So what I did instead was I did another episode that is still pretty long, but I had already started and I was like, okay, well, this is much more like concrete and like mm-hmm. definitive because more stuff is still coming out about, um, West Memphis. Yeah. yeah West Memphis. So, um, today I am talking about the horrible torture and murder of Sylvia Likens. Oh, happy birthday. I know. Oh. <laughs> Well, I guess... What a choice. Well, it's... it's This is one of those cases that, like, really does keep me up at night. Oh, yeah. like, even though it it's, is, like, so definitive and, like, everybody has done their time served right. and things like that, it's still just, like, how? And honestly, I knew a lot about, like, everything that led up to her death mm-hmm. and her actual death, but I didn't know a lot about the trial, which I will be going into a fair bit, but, like, not too aggressively, because I know mm-hmm. that that's not, like, the super interesting part. Right. Um... But I had no idea all the, like, pointing fingers and shit that Mm. happened at the end. And it's just wild. I also, Um, with this case, it's just crazy to know that people have the ability to be this terrible. Like, I know we talk about a lot of terrible things. But this is, like, this is one of those. This and, like, the um, Junko Ferrada case. Junko Ferrada? She's the one from... uh, We'll probably do that eventually. It's very similar. She's uh, from Japan. She got, like, basically kidnapped by, like, a group of men who tortured her for, until her death. Like, in the crazy ways. Well, and seeing this one, like, really messes with my head because literally, like, a mother did this to her. Like, literally one of the most deplorable human beings ever. But a mother did this to her and got her children involved and got... Other people's children right. involved on top of it, like literal master manipulator. I can't believe it. Um, so Oof. of course I, you know, read lots and lots of articles. Um, honestly, the Wikipedia article is so detailed. Um, the so movies. the movies. So I did not watch the one with Elliot Page, but I have in the mm-hmm. past. Me too. Um, Elliot is credit as Ellen at, at that point. Um, mm-hmm. of their career, but, uh, I have seen that one and that one is like a true depiction, but the one that I did watch for this door. was the girl next door, which I don't is think a I've fictionalized seen version of it. It's a lot more gruesome and it's a lot more exploitative and it's not, um, it's much more sensationalized. The things that they do to her and the, tor- like when it comes to her torture in mm-hmm. that movie, the other like, one's an American crime, I think, right? Yeah, the one's called an American crime, yes. Yeah. I, would, I would absolutely recommend, uh, recommend that one, too. But Girl Next Door, 
honestly only watch it if you have a strong stomach because yeah. it is really, really, really hard. People horrific. have asked me to watch that one for... I think I, I did an American Crime in the past and people were like, you got you should watch The Girl Next Door too. But I haven't gotten to that one yet, so... It's pretty fucked. Yeah, um, I'm sure it is. Alright, so... Anyway... But all that fun stuff will be left uh, down below. And I will also be leaving links for uh, the, uh, like, guidance centers that are uh, named after Sylvia if you want to donate to any of those. All right. So the torture and murder of Sylvia Likens is widely regarded by Indiana citizens as the worst crime ever committed in their state and has been described by a senior investigator at the Indianapolis Police Department as the most sadistic case he has ever investigated in the 35 years he has served with the Indianapolis police. So Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949, and was the third of five children born to carnival workers, Lester Cecil Likens and his wife, Elizabeth. She was actually born between two sets of fraternal twins. So her two older siblings, Daniel and Deanna, and then her two younger siblings, Benny and Jenny. Um, So (laughs) I find it very interesting that they had like two twins and then just one single birth. A little wild. Um, So Sylvia's younger sister, Jenny, suffered from polio, causing one of her legs to be weaker than the other. She was afflicted with a notable limp and was had to wear a steel brace on one leg. This will be important later. Um, Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was very unstable. They often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, moving frequently and regularly experiencing severe financial difficulties. In her teenage years, Sylvia occasionally earned spending money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors, often giving her mother part of her earnings. She was she was described as being friendly, confident, and a lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair extending below her shoulders, and was known as Cookie to her friends. Cookie. I don't I don't know what it is about that nickname, but it just like makes me hungry. It, <laughs> I was gonna say I thought I always think it's like so cute to like be called like a Cookie because it's like it's just like oh it's Cookie oh look it's Cookie I don't know what kind of Cookie if you were a Cookie what kind of Cookie would you be if I was a Cookie what kind of Cookie yeah. would I be I think that I would be. I think I would be a Samoa. I would be a Girl Scout cookie Samoa. What would okay, you be? Okay. Um, I don't really know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted your opinion. You can't um, pose the question and then not know yourself. Hmm. Maybe I would be like a... Uh, maybe a snickerdoodle. I was literally going to say snickerdoodle for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a snickerdoodle. <laughs> like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got that. A little bit of spice, but still sweet and fun. <laughs> Sassy and sweet, for sure. Uh, So Sylvia also had a fondness for music, in particular the Beatles, love that for her, Mm -hmm. and was notably protective of her significantly more timid younger sister. On several occasions, the two sisters would visit a local skating rink where Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand while Jenny skated with her unaffected foot. So obviously all the way around, just like super kind, under like helpful, sweet, confident, like, girl, Mm -hmm. for sure. So, by June of 1965, Jenny 
and Sylvia Likens resided with their parents in Indianapolis. On July 3rd, however, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Banzuski. Banizuski? Sorry, it's Banizuski. I apologize. I'm going to have a really hard time saying that last name a lot. Banizuski. She is the mother of two girls, Paula and Stephanie, with whom the sisters had recently become acquainted with while studying at the Arsenal Technical High School. At the time of this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester that she would take care of his daughters until his return as if they were her own children. So kind. Shortly after the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into 3850 East New York Street uh, in order for their father and later their mother, mother to travel the East Coast with the carnival with the understanding that Gertrude would, was, would receive weekly fees of $20 to care for their daughters until they returned to collect Sylvia and Jenny in November of that year. $20 a week, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, the inflation. Am I, yeah. <laughs> Am I right? Um, during the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided with Gertrude, the sisters were subjected to very little, little discipline or abuse. Sylvia regularly sang along to pop records with Stephanie, and she willingly participated in housework in the home. Both girls also regularly attended Sunday school with the Gert- with Gertrude's children, and the pastor um, commented on Sylvia's piety. Let's talk about our bestie Gertrude here. Gertrude Nadine Benazuski was born on September 19th, 1928 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Lincoln. No, um... Virgo. Virgo. Just at the okay. end of Virgo. She was born to Molly Myrtle and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr., both of whom were originally from Illinois and who were of American and Dutch descent. Gertrude was the third of six children and her family was very much working class. On October 5th, 1939, Gertrude saw her 50-year-old father die from a sudden heart attack right in front of her. Six years later, she dropped out of high school at age 16 to marry 18-year-old John Stephen Banaszewski, who was originally from Youngsville, Pennsylvania, and was a Polish uh, and was of Polish ancestry, to whom she bore four children. Although John had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife, the two would remain together for 10 years prior to their first divorce. Their first divorce. That's important. Hmm. Following their divorce, Gertrude married a man named Andrew Edward Gerthy. This marriage lasted just three months before the couple divorced. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude remarried her first husband, John, bearing him two more children, and the couple divorced a second time in 1963. Can't make it work, huh? Just crazy. I'm like, I'm sorry, you broke up one time. It's not going to work. Right. <laughs> Weeks after their thir- her third divorce, um, Gertrude began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. She had one children with Wright, Dennis Lee Wright Jr. Shortly, there- shortly after the birth of his son, Dennis abandoned Gertrude. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude filed a paternity suit against Dennis for his financial support of their child, though Dennis was seldom able to pay for the upkeep of their son. So by 1965, Gertrude lived alone with her seven children. We have Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, John Jr., 12, um, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis Lee Wright Jr., 1. Um, although 36 years old and at 
and at a very solid height of five foot six, she weighed only a hundred pounds and has been described as a haggard, underweight, asthmatic chain smoker, suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage. What a description for right. this woman. My favorite is asthmatic chain smoker. <laughs> <laughs> like, hateful, haggard, haggard, asthmatic. I'm like, hateful. Oh, my God. I mean, it's what she deserves. I mean, honestly, if you look at pictures of her when all this was going down, yeah. she is just s- sort of very her- a little horrific looking. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the sporadic checks she received from her first husband, Gertrude occasionally performed odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing or cleaning in order to earn money for her family. Gertrude resided in Indianapolis at 3850 East New York Street, where the monthly rent was $55. So this $20 that she was supposed to get to take care of these two girls essentially paid for a third of her rent, more than a third of her rent, which is Mm. like very is very important to her, obviously. And is like a really great way to make extra cash, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. So although Lester Likens had agreed to pay Gertrude $20 a week in exchange for the care of his daughters, after only two weeks, these payments failed to consistently arrive upon the prearranged dates, occasionally arriving one or two days late. In response, Gertrude began to venting her frustration at this fact upon the sisters by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments instruments like a thick paddle making statements such as well i took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing Mm. truly a gem right as if they did anything right on one occasion in late august both girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with a paddle after paula had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper the house of children had attended by mid-August 1965, Gertrude had began to focus her abuse exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of her physical appearance and potential in life. Um, they say this a lot during the trial that, like, Gertrude and her older do- oldest daughter, Paula, who did a lot of the abuse, were just really jealous of Sylvia because she was pretty and smart and had sweet sweet and helpful and everybody liked her and, Mm -hmm. you know, they hated her for it. They just hated her for it. Um, And it's just awful. I mean, that's really the only way I can describe this woman is just hateful. The initial abuse included subjecting Sylvia to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of the garbage cans. Going so far to accuse Sylvia of stealing candy that Sylvia herself had purchased. Mm. On one occasion in late August, Sylvia was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach, whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked if she had, quote, ever done anything with a boy, unquote, to which Sylvia, unsure of what she meant by that, said, I guess so, and explained that she had gone skating with the boys there and once had gone to a park um, on the beach with them. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie and Jenny, Sylvia mentioned that she had once laid under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, Why did you do that, Sylvia? Sylvia said, I don't know, and shrugged. Several days later, Gertrude returned 
to the subject with Sylvia telling her, quote, you're certainly getting a big stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby, unquote. Sylvia thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, yeah, it sure is getting pretty big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whatever they whenever they did something with the boy, they were sure to have a baby. She then kicked Sylvia in the genitals. Paula, who she herself was three months pregnant at the time and jealous of Sylvia's beauty, then participated in attacking Sylvia, knocking her off her chair onto the kitchen floor, shouting, you ain't fit to sit in a chair, unquote. Um, there is a lot of uh, abuse, like specifically directed towards like Sylvia's like vagina. Yeah. And Gertrude, like, I I didn't I couldn't even put all the things that she would like fill her like kids heads with. But mm-hmm. she was huge sexist, like huge monogamous, like mm-hmm. was constantly had these like really backwards way of thinking, called herself like a religious woman, but really wasn't. And right. it was just Terrible like person. just like a bad person all the way around. But like essentially was saying things like this to her kids where it's like, well, if you lay like if you lay if you if you do anything with a boy, like you're going to have a baby and you're a slut and blah, 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 mm. like all these things. It's awful. Yeah, it is. One night as the family ate supper, one night as the family ate supper, Gertrude Paula and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force fed Sylvia a hot dog overloaded with condiments, including mustard, ketchup and spices. She vomited as a result and was later forced to consume what she had regurgitated. So gross. In what was Sylvia's only act of retaliation, she is alleged to have spread a rumor at Arsenal Technical High School that Stephanie and Paula were prostitutes. She she supposedly did this because she was upset with the household slinging her out for similar accusations. So... What a runaway. Well, yeah. I mean, she... They, you know, they were like... Spreading all these rumors about Sylvia, how she was a prostitute and how she sold her body and all these things. And it's like how she was a sex worker and all this stuff and just like really nasty. Mm-hmm. How she, I think at one point they like spread a rumor that she had the clap or something. It was just awful. I so bad for her. So, so bad. Um, so while at school, Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy who told her that Sylvia had started this rumor about her. And upon returning home that day, Stephanie asked Sylvia about the rumor and she admitted to starting it. Stephanie punched her in response, but Sylvia apologized to her in tears and Stephanie then also began to cry. So Stephanie like has like as we go through all the abuse, like she was one of the ones who did not want to participate and really tried hard not to participate and really understood like what, they were doing was wrong Mm -hmm. to Sylvia. And like, she was like her only advocate really, which obviously you can see because she like cried as soon as she realized that she had like punched her. Right. Right. Um, however, when Stephanie's boyfriend, 15 year old Coy Hubbard heard of the rumor, he brutally attacked Sylvia, slapping her, banging her head against the wall and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude found out, she used a paddle to beat Sylvia. Um, she also had, like, a three-inch wide, like, police belt she liked to beat Sylvia with. And the pad, like, this, she had multiple size paddles, but also one that, the one that she liked to use the most was, like, one 
and a quarter inch thick mm-hmm. and just like, you know, solid, awful, so bad. Yeah. On another occasion, Paula beat Sylvia in the face with such force that she broke her own wrist, having primarily focused her blowups against Sylvia's, oh, primarily focusing her blows upon Sylvia's teeth and eyes. Later, Paula used the cast on her wrist to further beat Sylvia. Gertrude repeatedly falsely accused Likens of promiscuity and of engaging in prostitution, delivering rants to Sylvia regarding the filthiness of prostitution and women in general. She would later occasionally force Jenny to strike her own sister, um, beating Jenny if she did not participate in her Mm -hmm. torture. So Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend, and several of his classmates frequently visited the residence to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, often collaborating with Gertrude's children and Gertrude herself. With the active encouragement of Gertrude, these neighborhood children routinely beat Sylvia, sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo lessons, lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes more than a hundred times, and severely injuring her gener- injuring her genitals. Disgusting. Awful. Um, to entertain Gertrude and her teenage accomplishments, Sylvia was forced at one point to strip naked in the living room and masturbate with a glass Pepsi Cola bottle in their presence with Gertrude stating to all present that this act of humiliation was for Sylvia to prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are. (sighs) Just like there's like, there's like so much sexual humiliation Mm -hmm. that goes on here. And I like... It, that's why I'm like Gertrude was like such a huge sexist, like yeah. and like I said, misogynist and all those things, yeah. as well. Um, to the point where, like in Sylvia's autopsy, they noticed that like while her like the inside of her vagina didn't have any um, trauma to it, uh-huh. like sexual trauma, as if she had you know been raped, it. yeah. Um, but her vagina was like severely swollen, right like, on the outside, and so. I'll say later, but like she ended up becoming incontinent because of it, which, because it, like, fucked up her, and because they would kick her in her kidneys and stuff. It's... It's awful. Like, Like, I just can't imagine, like, that was her life. It's it's, so sad. It's so sad. Um, it's so, so sad. She had no chance. Yeah, she, she really didn't. I think, I personally think that Gertrude always wanted to kill Sylvia, Sylvia Mm. from the very beginning, even though she says it wasn't premeditated. It's like... Mm. You, or... What did you think was going to happen? You thought about... You thought about her being dead, though, right? right? Um, so Gertrude eventually forbade Sylvia from attending school after she confessed to having stolen a school gym suit, which I assume is, like, a gym uniform. Yeah. Due to Gertrude having refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Sylvia with a three-inch-wide police belt, Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex, repeatedly kicking Sylvia in the genitals. Excuse me. As Stephanie rallied to Sylvia's defense, shouting she didn't do anything. Gertrude then burned Sylvia's fingertips with matches before further whipping her. A few days later, Gertrude whipped Jenny with with the police belt after she broke a single... After she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot. 
The Lycan siblings were fearful of notifying their family members or adults at the school of the increasing incidents of abuse and neglect that they were enduring, as both were afraid of doing so would only worsen their situations. And, like, there are so many people who could have done things who knew that something was wrong, that they just didn't. And I hate to say it, but this was, like, a period of time in American society specifically where... People didn't want to get involved in anybody else's, like, domestic disputes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the movie The Girl Next Door, like, the Gertrude character um, says to one of the boys, like, okay, well, just so you know, like, what goes on in this house is a domestic dispute, and that's our business, and nobody needs to know about our business. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Um <clears throat> Jenny struggled against the urge to notify family members as she had been threatened by Gertrude that she would be abused or tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did so. Jenny was also subjected to bullying by girls in the neighborhood, in addition to occasionally being ridiculed or beaten when she alluded to Sylvia's situation. In July and August of 1965, both Lester and Elizabeth Likens would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. The last occasion Lester and Elizabeth visited their daughters was in late August. During this visit, neither girl exhibited any signs of distress about their mistreatment to their parents. This was likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth had left the Banaszewski household, on their final visit, Gertrude turned to face Sylvia and stated, what are you going to do now, Sylvia, now that they're gone? And I personally think this was a turning point for Gertrude because mm-hmm. we will see very quickly that everything escalates yeah. to like tenfold. In September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana Shoemaker, at a local park. The sister informed Diana about the abuse that they were enduring at the hands of Gertrude, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physical abuse. Neither sister mentioned the actual address that they lived at, and initially, Diana believed that her sisters were exaggerating their claims regarding the scope of their mistreatment. Several weeks prior to this, Sylvia and Jenny had encountered Diana in the same park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie, and Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat when she mentioned to her sister that she was hungry. Sylvia didn't say anything about the sandwich incident. However, uh, Marie revealed this to her family in late September. In response, Gertrude accused Sylvia of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. The pair then subjected Sylvia to a scalding bath to cleanse her of her sin, with Gertrude grabbing Sylvia's hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her whenever she fainted from the pain. Shortly after this incident, the father of a neighborhood boy named Michael John Monroe phoned Arsenal Technical High School to anonymously report that a girl with open sores around her entire body was living at the Banaszewski household. As Sylvia had not attended school for several days, a school nurse visited the home to investigate these claims. Gertrude claimed to the nurse that Sylvia had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts, adding that Sylvia was out of control and that her open sores were a result of Sylvia, Sylvia's refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. So it sounds to me that it was like bed sores. Right. Which is like, 
No, maybe. That poor girl, no. yeah. Well, and she was getting beaten with things, and yeah, it was probably yeah, a bunch she, of stuff. I was going to say it could be like scabs and, mm-hmm. so, you know, that's, oh, God, I can't, I can't. Um, sometimes when I was like, when I was researching this, I had to like get myself a break. So I was like, okay, yeah, that's yeah, enough for right now. <laughs> it's a lot. Like, I don't know how somebody can do this to another person just for no fucking reason. Evil people. Yeah. So Gertrude further claimed that Sylvia was a bad influence on her own children and her own, like, and her sister, Jenny. The school made no further investigation. In- of course they didn't. Concerning Sylvia's welfare. Of course they didn't. They're just like, yeah, she hasn't shown up at school. Yeah, fuck it. Uh, She's fine. Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. Now, there was a middle-aged couple named uh, Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion who lived, who were nearby neighbors. Um, Apparently, they were like the closest to the family. Both had visited the residence on two occasions when the girls were under Gertrude's care. On both occasions, the Vermillions witnessed Paula physically abusing Sylvia, who on both occasions had a black eye and openly boasted about her mistreatment of Sylvia to them. We'll see this a lot during the trial, but like Paula loved to tell people how much she like beat up Sylvia. Like she was so proud of that. Yeah. It's real screwed up. Like her mom. Like, yeah, actually, though, she was, Paula was like, Gertrude's like, like, next in command Mm. when it came to this whole, with all the torture, essentially. Uh, Upon their second visit, both observed Sylvia to be extremely meek and somewhat zombified in Mm. nature. Nevertheless, the Vermillions never reported Sylvia's evident mistreatment to the authorities. Of course they didn't. They just said, oh, well, nobody does. Not my business. Not my business. Child getting abused. Not my business. If you see something, say something. What does the MTA tell us? (laughs) On or about October 1st, Diana discovered that her sisters were temporarily residing with Gertrude, finally. um, And she visited the property to initiate regular contact and just, like, keep an eye on them. Mm -hmm. Gertrude, however, refused Diana entrance on her property, stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow either of the girls to see her. Approximately two weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny by chance close to the home and inquired as to Sylvia's welfare. She was informed, I can't tell you or I'll get in trouble. So in October is when things really, really start to escalate. So due to the frequency and the brutality of the torture and mistreatment Sylvia was subjected to, she gradually became incontinent. She was denied access to any access to the bathroom and was forced to wet herself constantly. As a form of punishment for her incontinence, on October 6th of 1965, Gertrude threw Sylvia into the basement and tied her up. Here, she was often kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Occasionally, she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. Um, I would also just like to point out that all of this that I'm talking about literally happens over the course of five months. Yeah. Not even five months, four months. Um, And it was just, it was every day, constantly. I think, like, she was, like, really breaking her down mentally, for Mm -hmm, sure, as well. 
In the weeks prior to locking Sylvia in the family basement, Gertrude had increasingly abused and tormented Sylvia. She would occasionally falsely claim to her kids in the household that either herself or one of them had been receiving direct insults from Sylvia in the hopes that this would provoke them to belittling or attacking her. Um, one time Gertrude held a knife aloft and challenged Sylvia's to fight her back in which Sylvia replied that she didn't know how to fight. And in response to this, Sylvia inflicted a scour wound to Sylvia's leg. Or Gertrude. Um, Gertrude. Yes. Gertrude inflicted, sorry, Gertrude inflicted a, a cut on Sylvia's leg. Um, in the trial, one of the neighborhood boys who, uh, when they get on the stand, like refers to this house becoming sort of like a Lord of the Flies situation, mm. which I totally see that with Gertrude being the ringleader. And like, like I just said, like trying to get them to on their own accord, right. Beat the shit out of this poor girl for mm-hmm. like no reason. Awful. Right. Um, it's like unimaginable. Yeah, I I mean, honestly, I can't even imagine. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy that it happened, all happened in such a short period of time, which is, is part of me thinks what, that's why nothing was really said to anybody. Right. Like, no one ever went to the authorities. But then also, I honestly, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around the fact that it happened so close together. And that just, that she involved, like, kids from the neighborhood, like... And nobody said anything. Like None of their parents said anything. Right. Um, they didn't say anything. To, did they say stuff to their parents? Or, like, their parents weren't all of a sudden being like, why are you going over to that house, like, all the time, all of a sudden? I mean, I guess they just thought, like, they were friends with those kids or something. But still, it's just, like, I, I, I can't mean, imagine being a kid and going somewhere and being like, oh, yeah, this is fine. Like, let's beat this girl. Yeah, well... Like, What's wrong with these kids? Well, I think that was, like, Gertrude's manipulation, to be honest, because a lot of these kids were, like, 10 to, like, 13, maybe. But still, I I would think, I would hope at 10 to 13, I would still have enough of a moral compass to know, like, this isn't right. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, Gertrude was known as being, what was it, a haggard, uh, asthmatic... chain smoker and so she didn't have like the best reputation right, right. in town so wouldn't her neighbors like i don't know i just i feel like people were just so concerned about not getting involved that that's why this poor girl is dead like it's not it's just terrible. it's honestly i put the blame on the community on top of the people actually doing the abuse right. Physical and mental torment only stopped so that the family could watch their favorite TV shows. Aww. Neighborhood children would were also occasionally charged five cents apiece to see the display of Sylvia's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. It's disgusting. Throughout Sylvia's captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Sylvia before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water, proceeding to rub salt in her wounds, like actual salt into her wounds. Once Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's one-year-old son's diaper into Sylvia's mouth before giving her a cup half-filled with water and stating... 
that water was all that she would receive for the remainder of the day. God, that's foul. So foul. Ugh, I'm going to throw up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I knew what was coming. It's just... I know. Um, on October 22nd... Good thing you didn't have that Taco Bell beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> Am I going to want it? Who knows? Probably. You definitely but, still want it. Yeah. On October 22nd, John Jr. tormented Sylvia by offering her to allow... By offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers and then quickly took away the bowl and quickly taking away the bowl when Sylvia, who is severely suffering from extreme malnourishment at this point, Mm -hmm. attempted to eat the food. So like it was like the it's like the carrot in front of the donkey. Right. Sick. But like 10 times worse. Gertrude eventually allowed Sylvia to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself. However, that first night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water before falling asleep. And the following morning, Gertrude discovered that Sylvia had urinated on herself. As punishment, Sylvia was forced to insert a empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in the presence of the children before Gertrude ordered her into the basement. Uh, quote, Gertrude called Sylvia upstairs to the kitchen. Somehow the conversation got around to tattooing. Gertrude asked Sylvia whether she knew what a tattoo was. And she said, you branded my children. So now I'm going to brand you, unquote. This is, um, from the testimony from Richard Hobbs, uh, uh, about the, uh, incident on October 23rd that I'm about to get into, but that was said in court. Um, shortly thereafter, Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to return to the kitchen and then ordered her to strip naked before her saying, you have branded my daughters. Now I'm going to brand you. And she carved the words. I'm a prostitute and proud of it into Sylvia's abdomen with a heated needle. Mm. When Gertrude was unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children present 14 year old Richard Hobbs to finish etching the words onto Sylvia's flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. And what Richard would later insist were, quote, short light etchings, unquote, he continued to brand the text into Sylvia's abdomen as she clenched her teeth and moaned. Both Richard and 10-year-old Shirley um, then led Sylvia into the basement where each used a anchor bolt to burn the letter S underneath Sylvia's left breast. Although they applied one section of the loop backwards and this deep burn scar would would resemble the number three. Gertrude, also, like, they never say what Gertrude meant by, like, you've branded my daughters, now I have to brand you. I don't, I don't know. Maybe because she started that rumor about them being a prostitute. Maybe. That's what I, I mean, that's what I was thinking, too, but... It's a little extreme. Well, this whole thing. This whole thing is very very extreme. extreme. Um, Way out of line. Like, way, 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 way. Like, just the fact that these kids, even after she left, still continued to do this. Like, these kids need to be psychologically evaluated. Right. And, like, Richard being like, well, they were only, like, short, light strokes. Like, I wasn't doing it as deep as Gertrude was doing it. I was like, you were still doing it, though. So you need to be held accountable. Right. No, I think they all should. Yeah. Gertrude later taunted Sylvia by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved on her stomach, stating, 
Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? Weeping, Sylvia replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. Later that day, Sylvia was forced to display the carving to the neighborhood children with Gertrude claiming that she had received the inscription at a sex party. That (laughs) night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. The following day, Gertrude woke Sylvia, then forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away from the home. The context of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating Sylvia after she had initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon their body, upon her body. After Sylvia had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia and then take her into the nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest to leave her there to die. After she had finished writing the letter, Sylvia was then again tied to the chair railing and offered crackers to eat, although she refused them, saying, give it to the dog, I don't want it. In response... Gertrude forced the crackers into Sylvia's mouth before she and John Jr. beat her around the stomach. Um, Also, there were, like, reports that she couldn't... At one point, she, like, actually couldn't eat, like, the crackers or the toast or anything that Gertrude would give her because she was so dehydrated that, like, she just... She just couldn't. And nothing. Yeah. She... There was no way that she could, like, chew it. So now we're going to get into the events of the night of October 25th into the morning of the 26th, um, which is really where everything sort of comes to a head. So on October 25th, Sylvia attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing that conversation between Gertrude and John Jr. pertaining to the plan to like abandon her, leave her and to die in the woods. She attempted to flee to the front door, however, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she was able to escape the property. Mm. Sylvia was then given toast to eat, but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the toast into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until sections of the instrument were bent into right angles. Roy... Uh, sorry, Coy Hubbard then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and stuck, struck Sylvia one further time, rendering her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged Sylvia into the basement. And that evening, Sylvia desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help, hitting the walls of the basement with the spade. And one neighbor would later tell police that she heard a desperate, like, commotion coming from the house um well the basement of the house but the noise ceased around 3 a.m and she decided that she didn't need to involve the police since you know it had stopped oh of course great by the morning of october 26 sylvia was any was unable to either speak intelligibly or correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs this is like a huge uh red flag when it comes to malnutrition and, you know, her brain, like, your brain has so much water in it. You need water. And, I mean, she's getting beat with in the head things, curtain rods. Literally. So. It's awful. Gertrude moved Sylvia into the kitchen and propped her against a wall, attempting to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. She threw Sylvia onto the floor in frustration when Sylvia was unable to move the glass of milk to her lips. She then was returned to the basement. You did this, you bitch. 
Literally, it's awful. Shortly thereafter, Sylvia became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, Sylvia was unable to recite anything beyond the, beyond the first four letters or to raise herself up off the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her to either stand up or she would inflict a long jump on her. Gertrude then ordered Sylvia, who had then defecated, to clean herself. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's other tormentors gathered in the basement, and Sylvia was, like, jerking her arms around in an apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky, and you're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shouted, Shut up, you know who I am. Minutes later, Sylvia unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she'd been given to eat, stating that she could feel the looseness in her teeth, which is another dehydration thing. Mm-hmm. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front loose was, front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. Jenny then left Sylvia in the basement to perform gardening chores for neighbors in hopes to uh, make a little bit of spending money. Jenny was like, trying to hopefully get some money so that they could, like, run away mm. from the house together. I don't think Sylvia's running anywhere. No. And Jenny also can't really run anywhere because she oh, yeah. had polio. Right. Which, like, thank goodness none of our kids have to deal with that anymore. But, like, vaccinate mm-hmm. your children. Yeah. And vaccinate yourself right now. <laughs> get it together. Um, in an attempt to wash Sylvia, a laughing John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose brought into the house by Randy at Gertrude's request. Sylvia again desperately attempted to exit the basement, but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stamped upon Sylvia's head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs returned to the house and immediately proceeded to the basement. He slipped on the wet basement stairs and fell heavily onto the floor of the basement to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's emaciated and lacerated body after she had been giving, given orders by her mother to clean Sylvia. Stephanie and Richard then decided to give Likens a warm, soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her daddy was there and that Stephanie would take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, exclaiming, Oh, she'll be all right. When Stephanie realized that Sylvia was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as Gertrude repeatedly shouted at the children in the house that Sylvia was faking her death. Sylvia was 16 years old when she finally succumbed to her injuries and died. Gertrude initially beat Sylvia's corpse with a book, shouting, faker, faker, to rouse her. Like, (laughs) literal, like, this woman is so deranged. (laughs) It's just crazy. However, she soon panicked and and instructed Richard to call the police from a nearby payphone. When police arrived at her address at approximately 6.30 p.m., Gertrude led the officers to Sylvia's emaciated, extensively bludgeoned and mutilated body, lying upon a soiled mattress in the bedroom before handing them the letter she had forced Sylvia to write previously. She also claimed that she had been doctoring the child for an hour or more prior to her death, having applied rubbing alcohol to Sylvia's wounds in a futile effort to 
Oh, at a futile attempt at first aid before she died. She added that Sylvia had run away from her home with several teenage boys before returning to her house earlier that afternoon, bare-breasted and clutching the note. Clutching a Bible, Paula, having stated to all present in the household that Sylvia's death was meant to happen, then glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, if you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister. Bitch, what? No. Isn't that what Gertrude literally said to their parents, that she would treat them as her own children? My God. As previously instructed by Gertrude, Jenny recited the rehearsed version of events leading up to Sylvia's death to the police before whispering to the officers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Yes, Jenny, work. Good girl. Good for standing up for yourself. This should have happened way sooner. Well, I I think that if she hadn't gotten out of there, like, Jenny would have been killed that night, too. I'm sure. For sure. But, like, something just should have been said earlier. Yeah, I know. It's hard. Jenny said she should have said something in school or something. She was going to school, right? Well, right, but she's also a minor, and it's like, why, like, why couldn't the adults in their lives, like, like, advocated for them? Yeah. You know? I don't... Anyway. The formal statement provided by Jenny prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. on suspicion of Sylvia's murder within hours of the discovery of her body. Great. That same day, Coy, Hubbard, and Richard Hobbs were also arrested and charged with the same offenses. All were held without bail pending trial. Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Sylvia's death, although on October 27th, she had confessed to having known the kids, particularly her daughter and Coy Hubbard, had physically and emotionally abused Sylvia, stating, Paula did most of the damage and Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating. Gertrude's f- Gertrude further admitted to having forced the girl to sleep in the basement on approximately three occasions when she wet the bed. She became evasive when one officer stated the likely reason Sylvia had become incontinent were her mental distress and injury to her kidneys. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to having repeatedly beaten Sylvia along the backside with her mother's police belt, once breaking her wrist on Sylvia's jaw and inflicting other acts of brutality, including pushing her down the stairs into the basement one or uh, two or three times, you know, just two or three times, Hmm. initially, uh, and inflicting a black eye upon Sylvia. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia once and adding that most of the time I just use my fist to abuse her. Okay, good. Nice. Good job. Thanks for letting them know. He admitted to to have burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions. Occasions? Not occasions. 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 Adding that his mother had repeatedly burned the child with cigarettes. Five other children... Five other neighborhood children who had participated in Sylvia's abuse... Michael Monroe, Randy Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko had all been arrested by October 29th. All were charged with causing injury to a person and each was subsequently released into custody of their parents under subpoena to witness as under subpoena to appear as witnesses at the upcoming trial. So essentially they like they got off because deal, kind of. yeah, it was a, that was the deal is like, okay, well we don't want to go after you and you be in jail for like a year. Like we mm-hmm. want the big guns, you know? So the autopsy of 
Sylvia's body revealed that she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and like different stages of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, extensive muscle and nerve damage, and her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, like I was saying earlier. More, moreover, all of Sylvia's fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of skin upon the child's face, breasts, neck, and right knee had peeled or receded. I don't know what it means for receding skin. I'm going to say it's not good. Sylvia had evidently bitten through her lips, partially severing sections of them from her face. Um, The official cause of Sylvia's death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Kebble as subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple, probably Mm -hmm. from that curtain rod. Mm -hmm. And probably the reason why she couldn't, like, remember the alphabet was because her brain was bleeding. Yeah, yeah. Both the shock she had primarily suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted on her skin and subcurious tissues, plus the severe malnutrition were listed as contributing factors to her death. Rigor mortis had, or rigor mortis, as uh, Alyssa Edwards likes to say, (laughs) had fully developed at the time of the discovery of her body, indicating that Sylvia may have been deceased for up to eight hours before she was found. Although Dr. Kebble did note that Sylvia had been bathed recently, possibly after her death, that this act would have hastened the loss of body temperature and thus sped up the onsets, onset of rigor mortis. So, uh, Sylvia's funeral service was conducted at the Russell and Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon, Indiana, on the afternoon of October 29th. Almost more than 100 mourners were in attendance, and Sylvia's great casket remained open throughout the ceremony with a portrait of her taken prior to July of 1965 adorning her coffin. I find it very interesting that they had an open casket, yeah. but I guess maybe they were able to cover up some of the trauma to her face. Maybe. I don't... Seems like it would be hard to do, but... Uh, in, in his eulogy, the Reverend Gibson stated, we all have our time of passing, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life and added, she has gone to eternity and her headstone is inscribed with the words, our darling daughter. Now we're going to get, finally start getting into the trial because Mm -hmm. again, it is fucking wild. The Finger pointing, it's just crazy to me. And how quickly they all turn on each other. Mm -hmm. It's insane. So, on October 30th of 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Jr. Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, all were charged with having repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicted in a accumulation of fatal injuries to Sylvia with premeditated malice. Three weeks prior to filing of the indictments against the five defendants, Stephanie had been released from custody upon a writ of habeas corpus bond with her attorney successfully contending the state had insufficient evidence to 
to support any murder or accumulation of fatal injury charges against her. Um, Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Sylvia. The trial of Gertrude Banaszewski and her children, Paula and John, Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard began on April 18th, 1966. All were tried together before Judge Rab of before Judge Rab at Indianapolis City County building. The initial jury selection started on this day and it had to continue for a couple of days. Um the prosecution announced their intention to seek the death penalty for all five defendants on April 16th. They were also successfully argued before they also successfully argued before Judge Rob that all the defendants should be tried together as they all ultimately charged with acting in concert with their collective crimes against Sylvia. Um, and that if they were tried separately, neither judge nor jury could hear testimony relating to a total picture of the offenses of the offenses committed, which I think was so smart. Mm. Um, because I agree, like, cause then you can't get like the actual picture of like who did what, when, right. um, and they were all part of it, like overlapping each other in the timeline. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the attorneys, the attorneys for Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, Paula, and John Jr. claimed they had been pressured into participating in Sylvia's torment, abuse, and torture by Gertrude, and Gertrude herself pled to not guilty by reason of insanity. Reason of insanity. They really did try. Like they really, they really did try to get this woman off. It's wild to me. Like I get it. That's a like. That's an attorney's, like, job. Right. But, like, my God. Holy hell. It's so what crazy. What a lack of moral compass you have to have. <laughs> mm One of the first witnesses to testify on behalf of the prosecution was Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis, who testified on April 29th to the intense pain Sylvia had suffered. Um, he went over the fact, you know, he went over everything that they found in the autopsy. Like I just said, like her fingernails, how she had um, bitten through her lips, how she had like peeling skin and all all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Charles further testified that Sylvia had been in an acute state state of shock between two to three days prior to her death. And that Sylvia may have been too advanced in a state of shock to offer much, much resistance from any form of subjugated treatment in her final hours. Although he emphasized that aside from the excessive swelling inside and around her genitalia, Sylvia's body bore no evidence to direct sexual molestation. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny Likens testified against all five defendants, stating that she had repeatedly and extensively, both physically and emotionally, abused her sister. Yes, abused her sister adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assaults and there had been no truth in either of the rumors that she had falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each had made against Sylvia's character. During her testimony, Jenny stated that the abuse her sister had to a much lesser degree she had endured herself began approximately two weeks after they began to live at the Banaszewski household and that the abuse her sister was forced to endure escalated. Sylvia had occasionally been unable to produce tears due to her 
acute state of dehydration. Um, Randy Lepper, the neighborhood kid, also testified having witnessed Stephanie strike Sylvia real hard after her mother had ordered her to remove her clothes in his presence. He also said that he did see Sylvia cry. Like, he went against what Jenny said and was like, oh, I did see Sylvia cry. He was like, but she wasn't producing any tears. And they were like, so her statement still stands. Like, she she literally didn't have any extra water to get to tears. (sighs) Um, He then visibly smirked as he confessed to having himself beaten Sylvia on anywhere between 10 and 40 separate incidences. It's like, what? On May 10th, Baptist manager, on May 10th, Baptist minister Roy Julian testified to having known the teenage girl was being abused in that house, although he failed to report this information to the authorities. Useless. Right. Having being informed by Gertrude that Sylvia had made advances to men for money and that he believed the girl was being punished for soliciting. Oh my God. Like, that's why he didn't say anything? Okay, cool. I hope you feel real good about that, bud. Piece of shit. The same day, 13-year-old Judy Duke also testified admitting to having witnessed Lilikens once injure salt being rubbed into the sores on her legs until she screamed. Um, Judy also testified that there was once where Shirley ripped opened Sylvia's blouse, to which Richard made the casual remark, oh, I guess everyone's having fun with Sylvia now. Great. The following day... So it would be March, I'm sorry, May 11th, Gertrude testified in her own defense. She denied any responsibility of Sylvia's prolonged abuse, torment, or ultimate death, claiming her children and other children within her neighborhood must have committed the acts within her home, which she described being such a madhouse. She also added that she had become too preoccupied with her own ill health and depression to control her children. Mm. What? So she was blaming all this on her kids. 100%. Mm. In response to questioning relating to whether she had physically abused the Lycan sisters, Gertrude claimed that she had started to spank Sylvia on one occasion, but was so, but she was emotionally unable to finish doing so and had not hit the child on any further incidences because like it hurt her heart to like have to you know spank her like come on lady you gotta be kidding me she also denied any knowledge of sylvia ever having endured beating scalding brandings or burnings within her home However, two days later during the trial, Richard testified in his own defense describing the etching incident on October 23rd, um, and he further stated that after Sylvia's death, he simply returned home to watch the rest of the Lloyd Thaxton show. Great guy. Great guy. These kids are psychopaths. It's just crazy. When Marie Banazowski was called to the stand as a witness for the defense, she broke down and admitted that she had heated the needle, which Richard had used to brand Sylvia's abdomen. Um, she also testified that her mother's, to her mother's indifference to Lycan's evidence distress in relation to the physical and mental abuse she had increasingly suffered with her mother's full knowledge, stating that on one occasion, Gertrude had sat in a chair and crocheted as she watched a neighborhood girl um, named Anna Sisko attack Sylvia. Oh my God. 
Uh, Marie added that although all five defendants had repeatedly physically and mentally tormented Sylvia, she had most often witnessed her mother and sister committing these acts before her mother had forced Sylvia to live in the basement where the abuse had further escalated and she ultimately died. On May 16th, a court appointed doctor named Dwight Schuster testified on behalf of of the prosecution. When questioned um, as to the exhaustive interviews and assessments he had conducted with Gertrude, um, the doctor stated that she had been evasive and uncooperative. And uh, the doctor testified as to his belief that Gertrude was sane and in full control of her actions, adding that she had been sane in October of 1965 and remains sane to this day. Deputy Prosecutor Marjorie Westner delivered the state's closing argument before the jury on behalf of the prosecution. As each defendant, except Richard Hobbs, 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 remained impassive, Wessner recounted the continuous mistreatment Sylvia had endured before her death, emphasizing that at no point Sylvia either provoked any of the defendants or received any medical care beyond occasionally having margarine rubbed into scalding sections of her face and body. Um, Westner described Sylvia's abuse as stomach wrenching and compared her treatment at the hands of all five defendants as being equivalent to the severity to that committed against prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. Quote, there was basically no fat on Sylvia's body. She hadn't eaten for a week. We'll never know the pain and suffering that Sylvia endured. The best evidence of that was the picture of her lips lips that were bitten into shreds, unquote. In reference to the premeditative nature of Sylvia's death, Westner pointed the jury's attention to the notes that Gertrude forced Sylvia to write on October 24th, stating that Gertrude knew on October 24th that she was going to hold these notes until she and the rest of the defendants had completed the murder of Sylvia, like we were just saying earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, Holding aloft a portrait of Sylvia taken before July 1965, Westner added, I wish you were here today with eyes in this picture full of hope and anticipation. Now the defense, wild, their closing arguments. My God. Let's, let's hear them. Just freaking crazy. Let them rip. <laughs> William Urbecker was the first defense attorney to deliver his closing arguments before the jury. Um, he attempted to portray his client as being insane and thus unable to appreciate the severity or criminality of her actions. Um, stating, I condemn her for being a murderess. That's what I do. But I say she's not responsible because she's not all here. This woman is, if this woman is sane, then put her in an electric chair. She committed acts of degradation that you wouldn't commit on a dog. She has to be crazy or you, or she wouldn't have permitted that. You have to live with your conscience for the rest of your life. If you send an insane woman to the electric chair. Insane or not. Murder. Right. So, Forrest Bauman uh, began his closing argument in an openly critical manner as he attacked the decision of the prosecution to seek death, the death penalty for juveniles. Um, refrain, but, however, he refrained from acknowledging the catalog of atrocities that had been inflicted upon Sylvia. Um, he repeatedly emphasized his client's ages and stating that. Each was only guilty of assault and battery before seeking a verdict of not guilty for all. George Rice began his clothing argument by decrying the fact that 
Paula and the other defendants had been tried jointly. He like sidestepped a lot of the multiple incidences that describe um, Paula and her mother enthusiastically participating in Sylvia's abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and he claimed that the evidence pre- presented against his client did not equate to her actual guilt of murder, which is crazy. Yeah. James Netter began his closing argument. Again, like remember that like the defense has like a million fucking attorneys on their side because they have like five people. Mm-hmm. Um, so he began his closing argument in defense of Richard Hobbs by referring to the loss of Sylvia stating she had a right to live in my own heart. I cannot remember girl so much sinned against and abused unquote. It's just crazy. And he attempted to portray his client as a follower type personality who acted under the control of Gertrude. And then he pointed at Jenny and was like, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you uh, tell the authorities what was going on? You know, she could limp three and a half miles to a park, but couldn't take two or three steps out into the street of East New York Street to beg for help. Um, which I just think is so egregious that mm-hmm. he would even bring that up. Um, Netter ended his closing arguments by requesting a verdict of not guilty, stating Hobbs was guilty of immaturity and gross lack of judgment, but not of the crime of murder. Now, the prosecution rebutted all of all of these closing arguments um, by promising to speak through the mangled and shredded lips of Sylvia Likens. I see her wherever I look, unquote. Um, outlining the catalog of mistreatment Sylvia had endured prior to her death at the hands of each of the defendants. Uh, Leroy knew the prosecution attorney directly addressed criticism he had earlier received from Forrest Bauman in his closing argument regarding the prosecution cross-examining children, stating the prosecutor's job is to present the evidence to the best of our ability. Now let's look at some of the, the responsibility here. Each of the five defendants had first and foremost responsibility to leave Likens alone. And we have the responsibility to leave, to bring all the evidence we could find that could explain this crime. The prosecution concluded the, their closing argument by emphasizing the defendant's unison and collectiveness collective mistreatment of Sylvia before asking the jury to dismiss arguments made by the various defense counsels regarding of how they inflicted the fatal blow to Sylvia's head, stating, quote, every mark on that girl's body contributed directly to her death, and that was testimony. The rebuttal, the subdermal hematoma was the ultimate blow. This was the most hideous thing Indiana has ever seen, and I hope will ever see, stating that not a shred of evidence had been induced had been produced indicating any defendant was suffering from a form of mental illness. Um, the prosecution again requested the death penalty for each defendant, stating to the jury, quote, the issue here is not about the electric chair or a hospital, but about law and order. Dun dun. Will we shy away? Sorry, I had to. Will we shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or a jury? If you go below the death penalty in your verdicts in this case, you will lower the value of human life by that much for each defendant. The blood of this girl will forevermore be on their souls. 
The trial of five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury retired to consider its verdict. On March 19th, after deliberating for only eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder, committing a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder. Richard Coy and John Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing, Judge Rabb pronounced the verdict uh, pronounce the verdicts. Gertrude and her children burst into tears, attempting to console each other, and Richard and Coy remained impassive. On March 25th, Gertrude and Paula were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. That same day, Richard Coy and John Jr. each received sentences 1 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformery. Now, On September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula Benazuski on the basis that Judge Saul Isaac Rabb had denied repeatedly submitted submitted motions by their defense counsel at their original trial for both a change of venue and separate trials. The pair were tried in 1971. On this occasion, Paula opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face a retrial, and she was sentenced to serve a term between 2 and 21 years of imprisonment. Not enough. Definitely not enough. Despite twice unsuccessfully having attempted to escape from prison in 1971, she was released in December of 1972! Are you fucking kidding me? No! It's wild! Gertrude, however, was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison again. Over the course of the following 14 years, Gertrude became known as a model prisoner at the Indiana Women's Prison. She worked in the prison sewing shop and was known to be somewhat of a den mother to younger female inmates, becoming known to some within the prison by the nickname of Mom, which I find wild. She should have been killed. The other inmates. Yeah, well, I'm surprised that she wasn't. Right, like she was a child killer. Like Literally. On. By the time of, well, I'm sure she was painting this whole story for people, right. though, and they're being like, well, I actually didn't do anything. Right. Liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Piece of shit. By the time of Gertrude's ultimate parole in 1985, yeah, she got out of prison, but guys, she mm. had changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, which was a combination of her middle name and her maiden name, and described herself as a devout Christian woman. Oh, yeah, that's oh, her. So that's great. her. Holier than now. Now, news of Gertrude's impending parole hearing created an uproar throughout Indiana. Jenny Likens and other immediate family members of Sylvia protested against any prospect of her release. The members of two anti-crime groups also traveled to Indiana to oppose Gertrude's potential parole and to publicly support the Likens family. Members of both groups initiated a sidewalk picket campaign, and over the course of two months, these groups collected over 40,000 signatures from the citizens of Indiana, including signatures obtained from outraged citizens that were too young young to contemporarily recollect the case. Yes. Um... All signatures gathered demanded that Gertrude remain incarcerated for the rest of her life. 
Within her parole hearing, Gertrude stated her wish that Sylvia's death could be undone, though she minimized her responsibility for any of her actions, stating, I'm not sure what role I had in Sylvia's death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. What? Like, come on. (laughs) Despite Gertrude's good contact in prison, into account, the parole board marginally voted in favor of granting her parole, and she was released from prison on December 4th of 1985. That's the worst news. Nice. Um, yeah, it's I awful. hate that. It's awful. So, following her 1985 release from prison, Gertrude relocated to Iowa. Um, she never fully accepted responsibilities for Sylvia's torment and death, insisting she was unable to precisely recall any of her actions in the months of Sylvia's prolonged and increasing increasing abuse and torment within her home. She primarily blamed her actions upon the medication she had been prescribed to treat her asthma. Yeah, because asthma My inhaler makes you do crazy stuff. Right. I'm like, asthma and medication makes you go actually insane. Like, are you... What? Lady, come on. I'm a little crazy, but I don't think it's the asthma medicine. <laughs> Gertrude lived in a in relative uh, relative uh, obscurity in Laurel, Iowa, until her death until her death due to lung cancer on June 16th of 1990 at the age of 61. I hope it was painful. Yeah, she was dead before either of us were born, so nice. (laughs) Um, Reflecting upon the news of Gertrude's death, the issues raised pertaining her sanity at both of her trials, John Dean, a former report at the Indianapolis Star, who had provided extensive coverage for the case, would state in 2015, quote, I never thought she was insane. I thought she was downtrodden, a downtrodden mean woman, unquote. Um, and Dean also likened the case to the novel The Lord of the Flies, like I was mm-hmm. saying earlier, although he stated Sylvia's increasing physical and mental abuse was not a result of children going wild. It was children doing what they were told. Mm-hmm. After her 1972 parole, Paula is assumed a new identity. She was able to aid. She worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years at the Bowman Comrade Liscombe Union Witten Community School. That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. <laughs> In Conrad, Iowa, which I find it interesting that they both decided to move to Iowa. Mm-hmm. Having changed her name to Paula Pace and concealing the truth regarding her criminal history when applying for the position. She was fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. Um... Paula reportedly lives in a small town in Iowa. She is married and has two children. Mm-hmm. And the baby daughter to whom she had given birth while being tried in 1966, um, who she named after her mother, oh, was good. later adopted. So I'm like, yeah, great. Good. Whatever, lady. I have a lot of like, whatever lady. The murder charges initially filed against Gertrude's second eldest daughter, 15 year old Stephanie were ultimately dropped when she agreed to turn state's evidence against the other defendants. I think the only charges that they could have potentially gotten her with is like accessory, I Mm -hmm. guess, because she didn't say anything to anybody, but she didn't, she didn't actively participate in the abuse ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephanie assumed a new name and became a teacher. She later married and has several children, and she currently lives in Florida. Hmm. Shortly after their mother's arrest, the Marion County Public 
Department of Public Welfare placed Marie, Shirley, and James in care of separate foster families. The surname of all three names were legally changed to Blake in the late 1960s after their father regained their custody. Marie later married, but died of natural causes on June 8th of 2017 at the age of 62. Um, Dennis Lee Wright Jr. was later adopted and his adopted parents named him Denny Lee White. Uh, He died on February 5th, 2012 at the age of 47. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. each served less than two years in the Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole on February 27th, 1968. Richard Hobbs died of lung cancer on January 2nd, 1972 at the age age of 21, less than four years after his release. I know, it's crazy. That's young. Following his 1968 release from the Indiana Reformery, now this is a little wild, Coy Hubbard remained in Indiana and never attempted to change his name. Throughout his adult life, Hubbard was repeatedly imprisoned for various criminal offenses, on one occasion being charged with the 1977 murders of two young men, although largely due to the fact that the chief witnesses to testify at his trial had been convicted criminal had been a convicted criminal acquaintance of Coy's who had admitted to having been in his company at the time of the mur- of the murders he was acquitted of this charge oh my god so they're just letting this guy off? Yeah, they're just like letting them all go. Fine. Shortly after the January 2007 premiere of the crime drama film An American Crime, Koi was fired from his job. He died of a heart attack in Shelbyville, Indiana on June 20 year, 23rd of that year at, of the, at the age of 56. Good. <laughs> Bye. Good like, essentially, all the good people are still alive. All the mm. bad people are dead. John Jr. lived in obscurity as well, under the alias John Blake. Um, he became a lay minister, frequently hosting counseling sessions for the children of divorced parents. Several decades after his release from the Indiana Reformery, uh, John Jr. issued a statement in which he acknowledged the fact that he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to a more severe term of punishment, adding that the young criminals were not beyond rehabilitation and describing how he had become a productive citizen. He died of diabetes um, on May 19th, 2005 at the age of 52. Now, the injury to person charges brought upon the other juveniles in the neighborhood um who were known to have actively physically, mentally, and emotionally tormented Sylvia, uh, were all later dropped. And those people again were Anna Sisko, Judy, Judy Duke, Michael Monroe, Darlene McGuire, and Randy Lepper. Jenny Likens later married an Indianapolis native named Leonard Wade. The couple had two children, although she had been traumatized by the abuse, she had been forced to watch her sister endure. For the remainder of her life, Jenny was dependent upon anxiety medication, and she died of a heart attack on June 23rd, 2004, at the age of 54. At the time of her death, Jenny resided in Beach Grove, Indiana. Fourteen years before her death, Jenny had viewed Gertrude's, Gertrude's obituary in the newspaper, and she clipped it 
and mailed it to her mother with a note saying, some good news. Damn old Gertie died. Ha ha ha. I am happy about that. Yeah. Now, Elizabeth and Lester Likens died in 1998 and 2013, respectively. In those years prior to her own death, Jenny had repeatedly emphasized no blame should be placed upon either of her parents for placing her and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude, stating that all her parents had done was trust Gertrude's promise to actually care for them until their return to Indiana with the traveling carnival. Mm-hmm. The house at 3850 East New York Street, um, in which Sylvia was tortured and murdered, still stood vacant for many years after her death and arrest of her tormentors. The property gradually became dilapidated, and although discussions were held about the possibility of purchasing and rehabilitating the house and converting the property into a woman's shelter, the necessary funds to complete the project were never raised, and the house itself became demolished on October 23, 2009. The site where 3850 East New York Street once stood is now a church parking lot. Now, a few good things have come out of Sylvia's death. Um, uh, on June, oh, in June of, tw- wow. In June of 2001, a six foot tall granite memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia Likens' life and legacy in Willard Park, Washington Street, Indianapolis. Um, the memorial itself is inscribed with these words. This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, uh, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children and to the Indianapolis Police Department is still working to make this city safe for our children. Sylvia's death is credited to the adoption of Indiana's mandated reporter law and an increased understanding of the investigation and recognition of abuse. And the law states that should a member of the public suspect a child is suffering abuse or neglect, the citizen suspected suspecting this abuse has a legal obligation to report the abuse to the authorities. On October 26, 2015, numerous Indianapolis citizens, including um, Diana, uh, Lycan's older sister, gathered in Lebanon, Indiana, to honor <laughs> Sylvia, to reflect upon her life upon the 50th anniversary of her death, and to honor all children who lose their lives to child abuse. This memorial service, Diana informed those present that Sylvia's legacy must always be remembered and that Sylvia's tragic murder and abuse must always be remembered. The Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center is officially dedicated to the memory of Sylvia Likens, founded in 2010 in Lebanon, Indiana. Um, It was originally named the Boone County Child Advocacy Center, but it was renamed in Sylvia's honor in 2016. This child advocacy center was formed with the objective to assist child victims of abuse and neglect to minimize the ongoing traumatic events experienced because of their ordeal and to undertake a relentless pursuit to prevent child abuse both in Boone and Montgomery County. And with all of that being said, that is the horrific death and torture of Sylvia Likens. So sad. Every time, like, I've heard about it before, and like I said, I've talked about it on TikTok, but hearing it all together is just so sad. Yeah. Like, that poor girl, I feel so... Nobody should have to endure that in their life. Well, again, like, 
something could have been done, but right. people just were so against getting into other people's business, mm-hmm. I guess. But like I said, I'm glad that some good has come out of it right. and that now there are laws that protect children mm-hmm. and also hold people accountable for if they see yeah. things go, if they see neglect or abuse, it's holding them accountable for right. not saying anything because again, I don't, I don't blame any of the minors in this case when it comes to the ones who are not actively participating in the, in the abuse for not saying anything to anybody because it's hard for children to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. It really is up to the adults. And I don't understand why there were so many people who saw the red flags and never said anything. Yeah. This, it all, like it could have been, at least most of it could have been avoided. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's just wild, but you know, if you see something, say something. Very sad. Always. Very sad. Well, we will let, do you have any? Let's do a palate yes, cleanser. Yes, I think we need, <laughs> like, I think I we need one. Let's definitely cleanse. Definitely a palate cleanser. Um, do you have anything from, for this week? Yeah, I um, it, I just started watching it, but the new season of Cheer just came out. Um, season two. I really enjoyed the first season. I used to like Cheer in high school, so it's like nostalgic. <gasps> Stop. Yeah, you know? I love that. Cheerleader girl. That's me. Oh, my God. Um. So, yeah, it's just, like, I, I was nowhere near the skills that this team has. Because they're, like, this is, like, a, a really good, like, college team in the mm-hmm. South. And they're just, like, flipping they're everywhere. In Texas, yeah. Yeah, okay. I thought it was Texas, but I wasn't mm-hmm. sure. Um, but, yeah, they're crazy talented. But it's fun to watch. Um, which, a crazy thing, which I'm excited. I mean, not excited, but they're going to get into more is... Because Jerry was one of my first mm-hmm. favorite characters from the first season. So I think there's they're going to go more into detail on what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I mean, that that part sucks. But overall, yeah. it's it's a fun show to watch. And they, they introduced um, a new team in season yes. two. So we get to see, like, they're like rivals. Mm-hmm. So that should be interesting. It's like a very real life bring it on type thing. So for sure. I'm excited to watch that. It's a good fun just like relaxing watch. Yeah. What about you? Um, I would definitely say that my <laughs> palate cleansers for the week. Uh, well, one is Euphoria. Oh yes, season yes, yes. two just started. I don't know how cleansing that is. It's yeah, heavy, but it's still the, pretty heavy. But the it's first episode, I was like so pumped, so uh, pumped for everything. I'm so excited to see what this season brings. Yeah. The teaser made me nervous. Yeah, the teaser does make me really nervous. Um, and also, a palate cleanser for me has been cooking. For Christmas, I got um, a couple of new cookbooks, and Ooh. one of my favorites that's actually sitting right here. Yeah, I've been um, looking at it. <laughs> is, uh, it's this, I, I found this chef off of TikTok, actually. Mm. His name is Joshua Wiseman, and he came out with his very first cookbook. And I really enjoy it because it's essentially like, it's a bunch of different dishes from different cultures Mm -hmm. and it helps you hone in on like specific skills that you can use throughout like anything that you cook with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he teach like, for example, he has um, how to make like pho in here Uh and it's like, Oh, that could like help me learn how to make ramen or like things like, you know, nice ramen, not like, Mm. not ramen. I got Um, some of that in my cabinet. (laughs) Nice. Um, And yeah, I mean, he has a little bit of, 
he has a lot, like I said, a lot of different cultures, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's exposing me to, uh, some new cuisines. So, um, yeah. So those are mine. Well, Ray, do you want to tell the good people where they can find us? Yes. At the midnight record on TikTok and Instagram at TMR pod on Twitter and the midnight record at gmail.com. Do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. Um, We really appreciate constructive feedback, so feel free to email us or DM us um, with any feedback. Or if you have a fun story you want us to cover, or if you have a hometown of anything spooky or true crime related. Or suggestion of a case you want us to cover. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's like... If it's a case you know of that, like, isn't, like, highly publicized or, like, something that needs attention, like a missing person or something along those lines. Like, I love hearing about cases that, like, the the last one I recorded, it was just because a TikToker said, hey, this is my hometown. Like, do a story from there. Mm-hmm. So I found, like, a cool case that I had never heard of. I mean, yeah. sad case, but cool. Like. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. For sure. Um, and, yeah, we just really appreciate y'all being here. And thank you so much yeah. for the support. And yeah, I think I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. Well, until next time, I will see you at midnight. I I will uh, see you uh, at midnight. Uh, 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 <laughs>